I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Lots of people try and say, well, the gender pay gap. Women are making choices to go into these poorly paid industries or only to work part time because they have a choice to have children. We absolutely celebrate choice. But the fact is, if your choices are constrained by the structures and the opportunities and the policies and practices that are around, then they're not genuine choices. So if a woman doesn't have a choice to go back to work because there's no available or affordable childcare, then that's not a genuine choice to be at home. It's a requirement. We absolutely want both men and women to have a genuine choice in terms of how they work uh, and where they work, but you've got to remove the barriers to, to that being a full choice. Happy International Women's Day. Em and I are so passionate about helping women smash out their career goals and build the career they love. This year's theme for International Women's Day is Break the Bias. And so today we felt that we needed to hit into one of the big issues that women encounter at work. And that's why we're talking about the gender pay gap. We desperately want to break the bias that causes gender pay inequality. So we've reached out to the absolute expert, Mary Wooldridge, and she's the director of the Workplace Gender Equality Agency here in Australia. She's going to help us understand the gender pay gap, the reasons, how to overcome bias, and she also shares her own career story. We are huge fans of Mary and her work at the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. I know you're going to love the episode. One last thing before we get into it, we want to shout out to our show partner, Rare Kind. They are here to raise leaders, to create uncommonly good work experiences, to find the unfindable, to create culture and to celebrate people. But not the ordinary kind, the rare kind. You can find out about Rarekind by jumping on their website, www.rarekind.com.au. It is our absolute privilege for International Women's Day to be joined by Mary Wooldridge, who is the Director of the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. Mary, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Shelley. Thanks, Em. Great to be with you. Yeah, it's lovely to meet you. I know you've had a conversation with Shelley and Glenn before on My Millennial Money, but we certainly feel like we've hit the jackpot to uh, convince you to come back and, and it's my first time speaking with you. So, thank you. That's very generous. Thanks. So, let's kick off and we'd love to hear, and if you can just tell us a bit about your role with the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. So, the Workplace Gender Equality Agency is a, a regulator for the federal government in relation to collecting data from all companies that have 100 or more employees in relation to gender equality, workforce composition, pay, uh, and policies and practices like parental leave, flexible leave, and so on. Um, but that's really just the start of it. What we then try and do is work with those companies to help improve gender equality in their, their business. And so that could be implementing new policies and approaches, understanding where the pay gaps are, um, and really trying to to, to drive change so that we have, um, so that men and women are equally valued in the workplace. 
Let's talk about the gender pay gap. I think that it's a big topic that comes up from time to time through the year when we have, uh, I guess, different marks on the calendar. But it's more importantly something that you're focused on and your team's focused on all year round. Can you just educate us on what the gender pay gap is, uh, perhaps some of the reasons that we understand it exists? So it's important, first of all, to say that the gender pay gap is not the same as equal pay. So equal pay is the law. You have to be paid uh, the same for the same work or equivalent work um, in Australia. And that's been the case for 50 years. The gender pay gap takes all of women's salaries and all of men's salaries and then does a comparison between the two and says, you know, what is the relative position of men and women in the Australian workplace? And we can do that at a company level or an industry level um, or for the economy as a whole. We've done some work with KPMG um, that actually looks into the causes of the gender pay gap uh, in great detail. And what we find from that is that about 39, 40% of it is due to the fact that women take time out of their careers, um, whether it be for being a parent um, and the leave associated with that, with other caring roles and other part-time and casual roles that, that women predominantly may have. Um, about 30 to 39 to 40% is also attributable to discrimination. That's bias, gender stereotypes, um, the fact that you know, even when you graduate, there's a gender pay gap. Um, so there's decisions being made really from, from day one of your employment all the way through that are discriminating in relation to women and that contributes to the gender pay gap. And the last area is really that um, what we call occupational and industry uh, segregation and the fact that we have some highly feminised workforces like uh, healthcare and social assistance, education and training, and we have some highly masculinised industries like uh, mining and construction. And what we tend to find is feminised industries uh, pay less. And so because they're predominantly made up of women, that contributes to the overall gender pay gap. I'd really love to pull out of what you've just said uh, as a next place to go, this idea around bias. And I just had these little alarm bells ringing in my mind when you say straight out of uni, we're already hitting the workforce with that experience of gender bias. But I'll also be somebody who will admit that over the last 10 or 12 years of my career, there have been times where I've struggled to get my head around that concept. Like, what do you mean that when I come out of uni, that bias exists for me as a female versus a male? Mary, do you mind just, I guess, further pushing into that topic of bias and, and giving us a greater understanding of how that actually plays out for us? Sure, I will. And um so, so the data shows that uh, when women and men both graduate from an undergraduate degree, um, starting salaries for women are 3.9% less than for men. Um, so some of that is the fact that women are choosing to go into those lower valued jobs doesn't mean they're not more important or, or equally important, but they they pay less. And some of that is just in a in a comparison of um, the same industry. Um, employers are paying women less than men for those jobs. And at a, at a postgraduate level, that gap widens to 14%. It's quite incredible. You know, a postgraduate degree, um, graduating women get 14% less than men uh, upon graduation. So there's a couple of components to what's contributing to that. Some of it um, we can really try and affect now. Some of it is is actually, I think, long-term generational change about how we value um, the work that women do. I remember when we last uh, interviewed you on My Millennial Money, Mary, and you, you made this comment that was really interesting of even in areas where, let's say, let's focus on 
healthcare and we're saying that may be lower paid as an industry compared to mining and construction. And you mentioned even in those kind of industries, women are still paid less. They may not get to the pay or leadership levels. And I'm, I may be misquoting you. I, I don't want to kind of overstep there. But can you tell me about that? Because that's where I feel like there's the big concerns when you're in an industry and you're, you're sitting across from the next person and you're, there's all these barriers to progression for, for women, what does that look like to you? So just to go to the data first, because that's what I tend to do as a, as a data agency, let's take healthcare and social assistance. So um, 79% of that workforce are women uh, and 71% of the managers are women. So very senior, but there's still a gender pay gap in favour of men of over 14%. Um, so, you know, it, it's quite amazing. And once again, um, what that means is, Within the industry, men are um, having the higher paid jobs. Um, some of them may be the more senior managerial roles and the CEO type roles. Um, some of them in the healthcare, for example, is there's a predominance of uh, men in some of the uh, medical type degrees, whereas women um, are predominantly in the nursing type roles and they're valued differently. So, uh, as I say, some of these changes aren't able to happen immediately. It's going to be long-term change. Um, and it is about um, changing perceptions, right, from primary school, in my view, and, and in the home and, and in community generally, about uh, expectations of roles women and girls take, uh, and same with men and boys, um, and encouraging in careers um, that women can take on any of those roles. The, the other aspect to it, as we see in terms of the seniority within industries, is that predominantly the CEO type roles are drawn from what we call line positions, people who have worked at the front line of business um, or the chief financial officer type roles. Um, but they're predominantly filled once again by men. Um, so, and women uh, on, you know, in general may go into the marketing and communications, HR, um, and some of those, those other support type functions. So we need to be making sure that um, girls and women are thinking about line type roles, hands-on roles um, where they can progress up organisations um, so that they are genuinely considered um, as a potential CEO in time. And, and they're the sort of shifts that, that take time but will fundamentally shift the gender pay gap. Yeah, and no, I mean, it's interesting to see how even the momentum towards getting more women in those STEM industries as well that are, are high-paying areas and growth zones, how do we see more women in those zones as opposed to, I guess, I mean, it's really interesting when you mentioned how do we start it at primary school. And I, for me, I'm a mum, I've got two young kids, my older Sunny, she'll be going into kindergarten next year. And I'm thinking, what do I, what do, what do I need to do in my, my conversations with her as a mum to start encouraging her and, and reducing some of the, maybe the language or the bias that I've inherited from previous generations. Like what, what do you see in that space? What can parents and especially young parents like myself be doing? Well, that's a, that's a big question. And, and um, I'm speaking more as a mum than in my uh, director of Wajia role. But, you know, I think, I think what you're doing and what you're saying is exactly right. It's thinking about the language and the expectations, um, how we encourage our um, children in terms of what their passions are, what they enjoy, um, not trying to direct that necessarily into um, what you expect, but actually reflecting on, on them and, and their passions. I actually think um, the 
the schoolyard and uh, this this next generation, even at a higher level, even at university level and, and new graduates into the workforce are actually probably more open-minded and flexible than we are. Um, and I'm a generation ahead of you, both of you as well. But I think the, the equality of um, opportunity and expectations in terms of both work roles and um, home roles um, have shifted in the younger generations. And we're seeing it now at the start of the workforce where um, new recruits are asking questions about uh, flexible work and parental leave and, you know, values and, you know, environmental sustainability and all those sorts of things beyond, um, you know, that it's more than just a job. It, it, it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's important that the values align. And I think that's, as I say, starting in the workplace now, but but going down through schools. And so we have to make sure we don't bring our biases and expectations um, to our children. If I now put my recruiter hat on, I guess as you know, a branch off of Shell putting her mum hat on, what would what advice or what recommendation would you have for those responsible for recruitment in the workplace in managing the biases that exist because often we have unconscious biases and so the first thing we need to do is raise awareness of those but I'd be interested in your advice on on how we can overcome it from that recruitment perspective in a workplace. And there's actually a lot of work that's gone into um, thinking about uh, de-biasing recruitment processes. Um, and there's a whole range of things. It starts from the job ad. Advertising all jobs as flexible is shown to significantly increase the proportion of women who apply for those jobs. Um, and now, post-COVID, you know, we do have the capacity to work flexibly much more comprehensively and most pl- work workplaces are now offering that as a as a genuine offer offer um, gender neutral job advertisements as well and I think I probably shared this uh, this example last time but I'll say it again for, for people who didn't um, hear our, our last episode when I, I was on with you is that um, there was a, there's a company who have a very significant manufacturing um, plant and they were getting no women applying. And, and it's sort of a, a, a one-town uh, industry. You know, the, the, the town supported um, the manufacturing facility and they were getting no women and they wanted to get more women on the factory floor and through the, the manufacturing facility. And what they did is they just looked at their job ad and what they saw is that it, there was a requirement for a forklift driver's licence. And they thought, well, we don't actually have to require that. We could teach that on the job. And they removed it. And the first year they had 40% of their applicants were women. And now the next year, 50% of their applicants were women because it was a very gender biased uh, requirement that actually wasn't a requirement. And just by being thoughtful about what you're asking for and what's actually needed um, can significantly uh, change. And then it's all the way through. It's things like making sure you've got structured interviews. Are you asking people the same questions and therefore have a, a, a measure to be able to compare people rather than, um, you know, perhaps uh, being a bit more ad hoc or, or, or free, which may then uh, direct the the discussions in different ways so you don't have that direct um, comparison. And and to that, having very clear selection criteria about capabilities rather than um, what we have seen in some instances of the past is people are, are often more familiar with people who are like them. So that tends to, to flow through in a recruiting process. They're just some ideas, but there's, there's you know, lots of opportunities to, to really do, do a de-biased uh, recruitment process. 
Mm, so much to think about. And I just, I'm sitting here thinking, I wish the listeners could see mine and Shell's faces through this conversation, because as you're dropping some of these statistics or uh, you know, some of these different facts and, and evidence, both of our faces at moments are just going, what? Are you kidding me? Oh my goodness. So yeah, just a really simple change from let's remove the forklift license, like mm-hmm. not a not, not an essential criteria. Boom, 40% more gates. up. Yeah. Oh, I just love that example. And I mean, I love in that the organisation that you're talking about is coming to the table saying, how do we get more women in these roles? Like we actually want and need desperately the diversity in our staff. I'm just thinking on the flip side as a candidate. So let's take the candidate's lens. And Em and I were talking before the episode about what happens when you get down to the final two candidates and you get to, let's say you've been offered the role and as a female, I might come in and go, all right, here's the salary, like the, the recruiter says, here's the salary range. And I'm like, sweet, no worries. As opposed to, now this is a generalization. I know this is a tricky space to generalize, but let's say the male who may have been offered a similar role comes in and says, yeah, no worries, but I want to get 20K more. How do we help um, women to have more of those negotiations from the outset of employment? Is this something that is relevant or is this just maybe a stereotype that I'm thinking exists, but actually the data doesn't suggest it? So it's a really great question. And uh, I actually had this conversation with a CEO of a business uh, just yesterday who said to me, oh, we know women don't negotiate as well as men. But the evidence actually shows is that women do, um, that, that women uh, negotiate uh, just a, as well as men, but the outcomes of those negotiations favour men, not women. It's fascinating wow. in terms of that that sort of outcome. So it's actually back to the employer to say, um, how am I addressing these negotiations and am I dealing equally uh, and fairly between men and women in terms of uh, the outcomes of those negotiations? So, so the candidate, oh, that's... <laughs> I know, I'm like... <laughs> fascinating (laughs) and trying to understand this. And worrying. Like it's not, it makes me, um, I'm laughing, but it's actually quite serious. And I think what is that culturally? And and one of the questions we have is about uh, gender pay deniers. We're going to get to that in a sec. So as a lead in, Jordan Peterson, I know a lot of people um, love hearing what he has to say about gender pay. And he, he, I don't think he's a gender pay gap denier. He just says that the gender pay gap is not primarily due to discrimination and bias. And I think that to me, uh, in my own journey in HRs and seeing some of this at work where, where pay rises are more favourable towards males at times, I find that really challenging to wrap my head around. And also, what is it that Like, is it, he talks about the agreeableness. He says women are more agreeable and therefore don't get the favourable outcomes when it comes to pay. I'm interested to know your take on some of that, Mary. It's a really roundabout question, but what do you you have to say when people are denying the gender pay gap exists or they're kind of putting it back on women saying, no, it's because you're too agreeable? Wow, there's so much wrapped up in all of that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, it's it's great. And the, the fact is, is most of these people who are commentating on this are doing it 
um, from what they think and feel, not from the evidence base. And, you know, you can throw facts. They don't want to argue with facts or evidence. They just want to argue with, you know, what they think. Um, and that's fair enough. Some of them have bigger platforms than others and um, and use them. So we try and uh, push back on that when we can. The The fact is, is that lots of people say the gender pay, try and say, well, the gender pay gap, we've got equal pay, therefore it doesn't exist, you know, and I've t- touched on that earlier. It, it is different. Or that it's women's choices even. You know, women are making choices to go into these poorly paid industries or or only to work part-time because they have a choice to have children. Um, we absolutely celebrate choice, but the fact is if your choices are constrained by the structures and the opportunities and the policies and practices that are around, then they're not genuine choices. So if a woman doesn't have a choice to go back to work because there's no available or affordable childcare, then that's not a genuine choice to be at home. Um, it's, uh, it's a requirement. Um, or if a company doesn't have uh, flexible work policies and they've got to deal with you know, school drop-offs and pickups, uh, and so therefore they opt out of the workforce or only work part-time, then that's not a genuine choice. So we absolutely want both men and women to have a genuine choice in terms of how they work uh, and where they work, but you've got to remove the barriers to, to that being a full choice. And that's what a lot of people try and say is that the gender pay gap's driven by those choices, but those choices are limited um, by not having, um, you know, everything in place that enables a, a full choice to be made. Wow, that is so... I, the way you articulated that, I'm just sitting here going, oh my gosh, I love that, how you've said, it's it's they're not full choices, they're you know, you might have a handful of less than ideal options. And I think the childcare one is massive. Can we talk about that for a second? We had some questions for you. I feel like we've gone off script. But <laughs> I, I just think we, it's a really important aspect of gender pay inequality. And can you tell us where do you feel that childcare sits on the agenda, I suppose, in terms of government, but also in, t- in terms of the way organisations are helping people take paid parental leave and return like what what does that look like for you Mary okay I think it's a it's a very important part it's not the only part but it is a very important part because um you know as all parents know you know knowing that your child is is safe and well um and thriving you know if you choose to work as you do that um is is the number one question that you have in terms of um returning to work and um and being to able to make that that choice so I think it's important I think um I think every Everyone knows it too, and there's been some commitments from the federal government in relation to expanding childcare, and I think there's advocacy for more on that front. In terms of the employers, um, uh, employers have taken limited steps in relation to specifically to childcare. Um, less than 10% offer childcare on site or those sorts of things. Um, the steps that businesses have taken have more been around enabling flexible work or enabling you know breastfeeding rooms at at, uh, at the workplace so there's privacy to do those sorts of things and and there have been um, some steps in in that regard on in terms of parental leave more broadly um, what we've recently found from our latest survey is that um, three in five employers are actually offering paid 
primary carers leave um, and the vast majority, 91%, are offering that equally to men and women, which is fantastic. Um, so, you know, a woman could take a period of primary carers leave, make a decision to go back to work um, and, you know, the, the partner or husband could then, you know, take some time off as a primary carer as well um, and extend that. And that's in addition, of course, to the government's 18-week scheme that they have. So there's actually been, you know, some really positive uh, steps on that front and we obviously want more employers. We want all employers to offer paid parental leave, um, but we also want to make sure that that men have that choice equally um, as women do and men making that decision is really important because one, it enables women to go back to work if they choose to. But secondly, um, the research shows that when men take parental leave, uh, they actually, in an ongoing way, take a greater load of the unpaid work and care in the household. So um, it's not just for that period that they're home, but it's actually a realisation of what's actually needed and required. Um, and that fundamentally shifts the expectations on women and men in a household that, that really facilitates that return to work in an ongoing way. Hey, thanks for listening. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we've created a bunch of different podcasts. So go and check out My Millennial Money, My Millennial Money Express, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Health, My Millennial Business and Gen Z Money. Find these wherever you're listening to this podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Shell and I are often speaking on our podcast about the importance of conversations in the workplace and whether it be because you have an ambition or you have uh, maybe something going on in your personal life that you're hoping to engage the workplace on and, and find that flexibility, or perhaps it's that you've got a niggling issue and you want to tackle that before it gets too big. We really do try and encourage and empower those conversations. I'm wondering what thoughts you would have on an employee raising the conversation of gender equality in the workplace or the, the gender pay gap in the workplace because I'm not sure I would even know how to, you know, where to start in navigating that with my employer or with HR or whoever might be appropriate. And Shell, you might want to weigh in here as a HR expert as well. But while we have you, Mary, I'm keen on any thoughts you have about where there's room for a conversation on this in our workplaces. I'd love your thoughts on it too, because it's not straightforward, <laughs> but we really, really encourage um, employees to be asking those questions. But the first thing before that is most people don't know, but we actually publish um, on our website 
data about every company with more than 100 employees. You can actually go onto our website in our data explorer, it's called, and go and see, does the company, what's the composition of the workforce? How many managers are men? How many are women? How does that compare to the industry? Do they have a paid parental leave policy? What's the flexible work policy? Have they done a gender pay gap audit, which is a really important one from our perspective? And did they take any action after they did that audit? So there's actually a wealth of information available on our website um, that that can arm employees um, to go and say, oh, I saw we haven't done a gender pay gap. You know, why haven't we done one? You know, and even just talking to the boss or talking to the HR person, but you can go in informed, um, which I think is a much better way to, well, is a good way to start that conversation and provides a fact base um, from which to have it. Or we did a gender pay gap audit and I saw we took, a, you know, took a few steps. What were they? And open, you can open that conversation with a positive comment rather than a negative one and, and just start engaging in that discussion. Because as I said, especially with, you know, younger employees, I think um, it is really valuable. People you know, choose whether they go to an employer or stay at an employer based on these sorts of things. And so those conversations are, are really critical for the employer to know what's important um, so that they can be responding to, to what their employees need. And I love uh, when it comes to the reporting side of it, the accountability that that places on the employer. That and word was in my mind as well. As soon as you started sharing with us, Mary, that that is publicly available, I just thought, oh, I love that accountability loop. That's right. And I know we've talked about this before, Mary, but running HR teams internally, I've done many of the reports over my years in HR and they're fantastic tools. I love when you break it down and, and we'll put in the show notes how you can find the link um, to go and have a look and find your organization if you work in a organization that's over 100 people you, I love when it gets to that key management personnel part I um, and you start to see the breakdown you can go okay well we've got uh, this many managers are female this many managers are male this is how we're kind of performing um, when it comes to having women in leadership and that brings me I guess to our next thing because I think this is a really important component of how do we help women overcome the barriers to leadership? How do we help them get into those roles of influence? Because organizations who have that diverse leadership team with, I guess, how do we, how, what are the things that you're seeing that can help really support any of our listeners who want to get to those roles and overcome any of the barriers along the way? The good news is, is that many employers are aware of um, gender equality and how important it is. And actually, not only is it good for you know, morally and socially. It's actually good for them financially as well. Um, companies with better uh, diversity in terms of their senior leadership and board actually make more money. They're more profitable. Um, they have a higher value on the stock market, you know, all of those sorts of things. So um, many companies, not all, see this as, as an important priority. And so um, women, you know, within organisations uh, can start to ask those questions. I, you know, I'm looking for the opportunity to succeed within the organisation, get promotion, get progression. Um, you know, are there, what, what, um, what's in place within the organisation to help me to do that? And that's a very genuine and legitimate question to ask. Um, you know, what recommendations would you have? Sometimes there's specific programs that they have for emerging talent. They try and identify people who are coming up through an organisation and um, may pull them out for extra support or training or mentoring. Um, or it could be just identifying a woman or, or a man um, more senior in the organisation and saying, you know, 
I'd love you to be a mentor or a supporter of me as I, you know, um, progress on my career. Um, and that can either be within the organisation or outside. Um, you know, we know the, that sort of support happens. Um, so it's, I think um, it's, you know, you can sit and wait, but if you get proactive about it, there are ways to, to you know, enhance your, your um, opportunities. And that's such a great way of putting it, of being proactive, having the conversations, putting your hands up. And I know Em talks about this and will bang on about this for all time about how do you actually take that ownership over your career and, and ask the question of your employer. Can I, ju- can I just say on that for one sec, I've got to tell you, my th- I've got a saying that I've always lived by. And um, you know, when I was 16, I was an exchange student in Canada. And uh, there was this amazing ice hockey player named Wayne Gretzky, who was the number one goal scorer in the North American Hockey League. And he had a saying that said, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Um, and I'll just say that again because it's double negative. You've got you know, 100, you, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And, and I've always sort of thought, you've got to have a go. You know, you just never know. And it, But if you don't try, um, you're never going to have the opportunity to, to you know, to, to get that goal or, or get that, pro, you know, promotion or whatever it might be. And, and, you know, now all these years on, I still think about it when I'm faced with, you know, something about, you know, should I or shouldn't I? You know, you've got to have a go. Absolutely. And same goes for you could apply, not only have a go, ask the question, you know, put it out there. Nobody can read your mind. So if there's something that you're chasing, just make sure that you're talking about it as well. I'm with you, Mary. <laughs> it's, it's, such a, it's such a great expression. I think I need to write that one down and I'm sure a few of our listeners will need to write that down to remind themselves. I've got it on my coffee mug, I've got to say. I oh, do you? Yes. Oh, Love yes. that. Isn't it funny you have these certain sayings that really um, resonate and you think, I need to continually remind yep. myself of that. It's not like you, you get it done and you, you move on from it. It's, it's something that comes up and comes up again. What are, and I realised halfway through this conversation, I've realised, oh, we haven't actually asked about the, the actual gap. So what is the data in terms of, what is the current percentage of women in leadership and CEO roles? And, and can you tell me what the dollar figure is of the pay gap at the moment? Because I haven't looked since the latest update, which I think was maybe last month. Yeah. So there's um, a, a couple of different things. So the gender pay gap, and it is a little bit confusing because there's two calculations. There's our calculation, which is for companies with 100 or more and we actually include everyone part-time full-time we include not only base salary but also um, bonuses because we know more senior people often get bigger bonuses and if you don't calculate them and more senior people are predominantly men you know so our calculation is that the gender pay gap is 22.8 percent and that's that's including everything um, and that means that that women earn um, roughly $26,000 a year less than men on average across all women. We also calculate a gender pay gap from the Australian Bureau of Statistics data, which is average weekly earnings, which is literally base salary for full-time workers. Um, and that's a bit of a benchmark that's used nationally for everyone. Um, and that's obviously all workers, as I've said. And the gender pay gap there is 13.8%. It's about $260 a week. So there's two ways of calculating it. But what we always say is no matter you know how you calculate it in every industry and in every occupation um, uh, across the board there's a significant gender pay gap in favour of men. And if anybody wants to do the quick maths in their head on what that could look like over the course of a career then it's quite uh, you might fall off your seat I think. 
Well, I don't want to be too depressing, but we do know that women's retirement savings are between 20 to 30 percent less than men. And that's really the the gender pay gap year on year because super's on top of it, um, adding up. Um, And so at the end of your working career, it has significant ramifications too. And I'm, I mean, it's such a saying, I don't want to be too depressing, but you know what? We actually need to deal and confront the pain of this problem. Absolutely. Like it just, it gets to me so much. And I think I'm so passionate about this area. And that's why I'm so stoked that you're in your role driving this change. And this, the agency's role is really important in educating us and allowing us to be confronted by the reality of $26,000 a year over a 45 year career holy crap. And that's just not good enough. And I get really annoyed by the people that say it's not a real thing. Cause I'm like, actually, no, I know Mary, you and I both shared a very similar experience of having unequal pay. And we talk about that, go listen to the My Millennial Money podcast, where we chat that through. And when you've had a situation and a story where you have been paid unfairly and unequally, which I know is not about pay equality, but it's still a real problem. How, like, I just think, Anyway, I'm ranting now, but <laughs> You're, yeah, this is rant worthy. <laughs> it is rant worthy. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so we've talked through. We know the dollar figure. We know the percentage. Tell me, let's get to now what we're thinking about the future. Because yes, it's painful, but we have to be confronted with the reality of what we're what we're dealing with. What do you want want to see when you think about future generations? What do you want to see? What's the agency's vision for this space? So wouldn't it be great if you guys were doing a podcast on something completely different in 10 years' time because we'd solve this issue? That, that could yes. be our aspiration. Yeah, we'll be like, remember that time when we used to have that problem? Yeah, remember when we could rant about something else? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we want to... We want to get rid of the gender pay gap that's the that's the goal and look you know it might be plus or minus you know a few percent either way um and we do that with the same with the composition of the workforce we say a balanced workforce is is 40 percent of men and women and that middle 20 can be you know at least 40 percent men and women that middle 20 percent can be a mixture of the two so you know it's about um uh getting within within a reasonable range same with boards um and so on so we we do and you did ask before and i didn't comment on it we we are improving on our composition of the workforce. Um, that is improving. Um, but at the top level, there's less than one in five workers, uh, CEOs who are women. Um, so it's about 50-50 in terms of the workforce as a whole. But um, we've just ticked over now about 40% of the workforce uh, um, of managers are women. Um, so that's that's good. You know, we want to keep going. Um, it is sort of on the edge of balance, but, um, but there's still momentum for change. Um, but at the senior levels is where we have the biggest gaps. Yes, yeah, so the longer term aspiration is to address it. We've got to get more women in, uh, you know, into line roles. We've got to get more women into into senior roles. We've got to um, address these issues um, about, you know, pay discrepancy. Um, we have to, and and in order to do that, we've got to make sure that it's not only about the jobs and the pay, but it's also about the support, the flexibility, um, the recognition that men are different than women in relation to, you know, having having children and um, and necessarily what that entails. Um, but the workplace is supporting that, celebrating that and, and seeing that as a normal part and that men have an active part to, to play in that as well. Sometimes in the media, it floats to the surface, albeit I think the dialogue is consistently there. This idea of whether it is right or wrong to 
expect a certain number uh, of, say, board positions to be female appointed. What would be your opinion on that, Mary? Do you think that that becomes tokenistic and uh, we should just find the best person for the job and ignore any sort of gender, um, I guess, uh, requirements as far as how many females are on the board, how many males? Or would you have a different perspective? Oh, absolutely not. You've got to you've got to set targets, you, because mm. it doesn't happen by you know just waiting over over time and hoping for the best, or not even hoping, or not even paying any attention to it. Um, and we've seen that. So um, you know, I'm I'm not a huge fan of quotas myself because I think they impose and don't change culture in the process. But targets, um, and sometimes enforceable targets, and things where you know there's actually a financial penalty to someone's pay if if they're they're not promoting enough people of, you know, range of genders or, you know, the board setting a target for the CEO um, in relation to performance on pay or gender equality more broadly. Um, I think targets are shown to have an impact to, to achieve change um, and that we do need to have um, that diversity around the board table. Now, I'm of the view 40-40-20 is, is, a, is a good way to do it. Um, it doesn't need to be either way, but the numbers show at the moment there's 22% of boards uh, that have no women, um, if you can believe it, and uh, it's about 75% of boards have 60% or more men. So so we've got a fair way to go um, in terms of getting more balance. But once again, our research shows when a board is um, more diverse in terms of gender, the company performs better. This has been such a multidimensional conversation. <laughs> and at times I've found myself uh, resisting going down many rabbit holes. Go down a rabbit hole. Oh, it's okay. I better not today. But like we were saying, I was like, maybe we need a part two of everything. But look, I just think there's just so much to consider. And if nothing else, I've got a lot to think about. I'm sure I'm not the only one though. As I was being introduced, Mary, to your background, uh, it's quite impressive. Uh, it sort of rattled off this quite amazing career where you could talk about, studied at Harvard, MBA at Harvard, I believe, uh, worked for McKinsey, political career, can you just tell us, if you were to rewind back to your younger self, many of our listeners are between that sort of early 20s to early 30s age range, and so they're starting out their career. They're typically quite driven, which is why they listen to a career podcast. Uh, would you mind sharing some wisdom that you wish you could have told your earlier self? Uh, sure. And, and when I look back, and I, I have a bit of a no regrets um, approach to things, so I don't don't regret anything. You know, I always try and take a considered approach to decisions I make. But it does go back to that Wayne Gretzky saying, you know, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. You know, every single job that I, um, job change I made, I had butterflies in the pit of my stomach. You know, can I do this? I don't know. Is it too much of a stretch? Um, and it I didn't know, I knew that the job wasn't right if I didn't feel that nervousness and that challenge. Um, and so I always sought to, yeah, to, to, to st stretch and extend myself as I either put myself forward for roles or if, if someone approached me about, about a possibility. So it was about, um, I think, uh, overcoming the nervousness and having a go. Um, and so that's been a really important characteristic. Um, the other thing that I think 
that's been important in my career is is you know you you achieve very little on your own. Um, it actually is you know the the networks, the relationships, the friends. You know it's it's people thinking of you for roles, even for this job. But, you know someone sent me the tweet of the job description and said this would be perfect for you. You know, and I thought actually it wouldn't. I wouldn't have seen it otherwise. You know, so it is valuing those broader relationships that you build up during the course of your career. Um, and I've always found, you know, you do the same for others and, and they do it for you. And so value those friendships, um, you know, network, you know, through your industry or through your peer group or, or through things that you're passionate about. Um, and that makes a difference. And the third thing is, is do what you're passionate about. You know, I really think it's important that, um, you know, and sometimes people, early career take a step back on a path they might be on and take a role that maybe doesn't pay quite as much or is at a lower level but it's more on the things that they're you know doing what they're passionate about and that is really important as well because I find if you're passionate about it you work hard you do well um, and you're excited about uh, about the future. Ah there's so much gold in that Mary. Tell us just I think probably time for one more question before we wrap up, but I would just love to know, you mentioned that feeling of butterflies that you, I love that, even that um, test that you almost have of, I, I don't take a role unless I feel like it's a little bit of a stretch. How do you overcome the fear that comes with, um, oh, this role, it, it may be a, a, that little bit uh, beyond my skill set or certain things that may be challenging about it. How have you overcome the fear that comes with that? I think um, I think it's a couple of things. Um, I've, I've definitely been a, um, experienced the whole imposter syndrome. You know, one day people are going to find out that, you know, I've been faking it all along. And, um, and it took a fair time in my career before I actually had the confidence in my own capabilities that, you know, I, you know, it couldn't have been a fluke every single time that things have gone pretty well. Um, you know, I actually, I actually can do it and I should have some confidence in relation to it. So what I have done often is, is talk to people, you know, if you took on a new role or think about it, get, get as much information as you can. And then, you know, often you've got a little bit of time before you take it on what preparation can you do to make sure you're more equipped when you start? You know, who do you need to talk to who's done this sort of role in the past and get their wisdom and knowledge about, you know, how they dealt with it or traps for young players or, or whatever it might be? Um, and then get in and, and don't, I think, you know, not over-promising and then under-delivering, just, you know, being being thoughtful and you don't have to, you know, hit you know kick goals in the first five minutes um taking some time to to make sure you know you understand the dynamics you learn the roles um you know who's who and uh and what's important and then um making some thoughtful steps in terms of the leadership that you want to show or the change you want to make this advice is so powerful and powerful for anyone listening, but particularly given this episode has been in honour of International Women's Day, I want to make sure that all our female listeners hear it because the other thing I will add that I think is on theme for today is that often as women, we don't feel as confident to apply for those jobs that we don't feel like we have at least an 80 to 90% match for, whereas our male counterparts will maybe throw their hat in a ring at about 50 to 60%. It's so less. I'm sure it's less. <laughs> there you go. I'm just going like gut feel, but yeah, you've heard it here first. It's less than that. So look, if, it can, if what you've said can just give that nudge to someone who's looking at a job ad right now thinking, should I apply or not, then let me say 
you've got three supporters sitting here yes. that reckon you should. Do you know the other thing I've always thought, though, about jobs and stuff is that there's actually no downside in putting yourself forward. If it doesn't work, oh. there's, there's, you know, it doesn't work and it's not the right match. I have always been of the view that if a job's, you know, if you put yourself forward and you've been thoughtful and you've done the work, if 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 it were if the match is made if they like you as much as you like them then it's meant to be um, and you've got to have the conversation in order to know whether that magic can ever work totally and I often say to people you can apply and go through the recruitment process you haven't been offered the job yet so you don't actually have to make the decision about whether or not you accept that job until you've been offered it and by going through that process you'll probably find that you receive a lot of information that helps you make that decision that you can't get just from a job ad and look you're only even if it flops after you've started you're only one decision away from from your next adventure so (laughs) here here Mary, we just want to say thank you so much. It's an absolute privilege for us to be chatting with you for International Women's Day. And I know you said offline before we recorded that the uh, Gender Equality Agency's goal is that it's not a one-time thing. It's not one day in a year that we focus on this, that it's something that we need to continually strive towards and work hard to see the gap eliminated. I want to say I'm so glad you overcame the butterflies and went with the role because I know that it's going to bring about some amazing results in this space. So thank you on behalf of Em and I and the whole My Millennial Career and My Millennial Money family. We thank you so much. Uh, great, great to be with you. And I just, I love what you do. And so, you know, really pleased to be able to have the opportunity to be with you and, and support what you're, what you're doing and, um, uh, and, and your listeners and their aspirations for the future. Thanks so much, Mary. Look forward to talking again soon. Cheers. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Hey, thanks for listening. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we've created a bunch of different podcasts. So go and check out My Millennial Money, My Millennial Money Express, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Health, My Millennial Business, and Gen Z Money. Find these wherever you're listening to this podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.